At this time, I invite you to turn in your pew Bibles to page 1752, Romans chapter 4. We will be looking at verses 13 through 25 this evening. Romans chapter 4, 13 through 25. Again, on your pew Bibles, page 1752. We will also be looking at the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 23. That can be found on page 30 in the back of your green Psalter hymnal. So again, Romans 4, 13 through 25, and Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 23. Before we read this evening, I invite you to bow your heads and ask him the Lord's blessing as we read his word this evening. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before your presence once again asking that the word we read may mold us, may shape us, that your truth that is heard this evening may guide us through our lives this week, that we are called once again to be heightened to your will. Lord, may your name be praised, may your gospel be preached, may your truth go forth from this place. We ask us in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, amen. Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old and Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins, and was raised to life for our justification. Thus far the reading of God's word. Turning now in the Heidelberg Catechism, again page 30 in the back of the Psalter hymnal, Lord's Day 23. There we have questions and answers 59, 60, and 61. I will read the question, and I ask that we respond in believing voices to the answers. Question 59, what good does it do you, however, to believe all this? It is 
In Christ I am right with God and heir to life everlasting. Question 60, how are you right with God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them. And even though I am still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Question 61. Why do you say that by faith alone you are right with God? It is not because of any value my faith has that God is pleased with me. Only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness make me right with God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. People of God, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, tonight we look at a topic that is something that is a favorite topic of almost every theologian. Uh, you can find as many theologians in the world and just about every single one of them has a book on faith. Um, whether it's the faith of Abraham, the faith of Moses, the faith of some obscure Old Testament reference. Some would say the faith of John. Some say the faith of Peter. There is always a talk of faith. And ultimately, it comes down to eventuality, our faith, and how our faith needs to be like this person, or how our faith has a similarity with someone from Scripture. Um, in, the comic, in the common prayer book, the prayer of Jabez, we hear about this quite obscure Old Testament person whose faith was so great that his prayer was answered. And the author of that book decided that was just enough of a verse that he could write 200 pages on it. I wish I could be that prolific sometimes. But something that maybe we don't do often enough is take a little bit of a deeper dive into what is faith? How do we know what faith is and how do we not confuse faith for something that it isn't? Tonight, I'd like to break down what are the aspects of faith and then how we cannot confuse faith or how we should not confuse faith for that which it isn't. So I have four points this evening. We're all going to learn a little Latin this evening. My first three points are notitia, essentia, and fiducia. My last point is, quite simply, not to be confused. Don't worry, I have the whiteboard. Hopefully I spell things correctly. So the first thing we're going to look at this evening Notitia. 
Notitia is a Latin word meaning knowledge. What must I know? This is the common question that Christ has asked all the time. Lord, what must I do to be saved? As if there is some secret knowledge about how am I supposed to be saved? What am I supposed to do? And the first thing that Christ usually says is, Follow the commandments. Well, these I've done. But we as theologians have said, well, first of all, if you want to believe in something, as question one asks, or our first question this evening asks, what good does it do you, however, to believe all this? Well, what do we believe is a good question. Lord's Day 23 comes after a series of Lord's Days talking about the petitions, well, not the petitions, but the clauses of the Apostles' Creed, what we've professed with heart and with mouth this evening. Taking a look at what does it mean when you say the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. What does it mean when you talk about, I believe in God the Father? God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is a knowledge that one must have to have faith. There is a something to it. Certain facts cannot be ignored. This morning we talked about what is truth. And the idea that truth... Sorry. Because of course I have a whiteboard, so of course I can spell things too. We talk about truth, and truth is distinctive from lies. Light is distinctive from darkness. You can't have a truth, and yet it be untrue. And yet that's what happens in our world, isn't it? We have a world around us that says, well, Jesus was just a man. There's no Christ on the end of that. Well, that's just what other people have made him to be. Yeah, maybe there was this guy named Jesus, and maybe he was born in Nazareth, and maybe it was there during the Roman Empire, but we don't have actual evidence of that, right? I mean, that was 2,000 years old. How in the world could we have any idea that what is being talked about in this spiritual book, how can that be physically true? And yet, a wonderful man by the name of Lee Strobel decided that he was going to write a book disproving what Christ was. And he found nothing but compelling evidence that Christ was who he claimed to be. That the only three options that you have when confronted with Christ are either he was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he's Lord. Our faith has to be based on something true. Or we, above all men, should be pitied. You see, those walking in darkness have seen 
a great light. And that light was the light for all men. When the light hits something, it gives a picture that was not previously seen. Sort of like those weird 3D pictures back when the I spy books, when I was a little bit younger, where you would try and cross your eyes and, oh, wow, there's a dolphin there. Although it just looks like some random, random jumbled up colors. Or, wow, oh, there's an American flag, and you try and cross your eyes, and some people could never do it. I still remember staring at these weird-looking pictures, crossing my eyes, and eventually my mom would just tell me, your eyes are going to stay that way, stop that. Well, thankfully, my eyes didn't stay that way. Otherwise, maybe you'd be laughing at me a little bit more this evening. But the question here is, when we look at the truth, when we look at what Scripture tells us, first of all, do we believe it's true? Where do we find that summary? We find that in the Apostles' Creed. After talking about each of the clauses, each of the articles of the Apostles' Creed, we have to go through and say, I believe, I believe, I believe. That's why we call it a creed. The word creed comes from, again, a common Latin word, credo, meaning I believe. And so what is faith? Faith is a truth that must be believed. So if we have this knowledge, if we have something that we know to be true, if we have a belief that is under, underlined with facts, both in external and internal biblical sources, if we have an understanding of how the world has operated since the beginning of time from a God who has known all things because he has created it, he has sustained it, and he has seen it, and he is guiding it towards its ultimate teleological end, if we have that knowledge that has been given to us by special revelation, well then what's next? That's our second point this evening, essentia. Now, essentia actually might look a little familiar to you because it's got an English cognate. Assent. In other words, I assent to this or I agree to this is another way of saying it. So if we have a knowledge of what faith is, of what the facts of faith are, we have to believe that these things are true. Question 60 says, how are you right with God? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11, verse 1 and 2 tells us quite simply, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. There's that word. One of the reasons I didn't want to have the right board up here is so that you wouldn't compare my handwriting to Pastor Carey's. But hopefully this is readable. But assurance of what we do not see. We have a knowledge of how the world operates. We've been given this knowledge by God 
who has been there, who is sustaining all things, who is providentially upholding all of the universe in his hand. But then there is an assurance and an assent. There is a confidence in what we have been told is true. Abraham was told, and he believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You see, faith here, first of all, is of grace. Going back a little bit. This knowledge has to be given to us by revelation. There are many people that say there are two ways to God. There is grace and there is law. Two kingdoms, if you would. And you can either live by grace and find God or you can live by law and find God. And many people that way would say, well, when we look at the scripture, we can easily divide it up. We can say that when Adam and Eve were given their mandate in creation, they were told, fill the earth and subdue it. That is their law. A little bit later, we get to Abraham. And Abraham is told a little bit more about who God is. And then you get to Moses, and you have the Mosaic Covenant, where here is the Decalogue, you must follow these things, and that is what the law is, and that's how you're saved. Then you have the Leverite and the rabbinical teachings. You have the stuff from the tabernacle and the temple. And over and over and over and over, and you see that God reveals himself in all of these workings, the beautiful imagery of the tabernacle and the temple showing how God is coming down to his people, the sacrifices that are made to pay for the sins. But how do we know that that's actually true? It's revealed to us by God, and it's given to us by grace. You see, that's where the intersection is, too. Because how do we have an assurance? How do we know this to be true? How do we have confidence in the truth? Because of the one who gave the revelation, because of the one who gives the grace. In our passage this evening in Romans 4, right before that is that very famous passage where Paul talks about how Abraham is justified by faith. In verse 1 he says, What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But how did he believe God? 
How did he have that assurance? You see, the anchor of the Christian life in the tempest of sin, battered by waves and storms in the world and the flesh and the devil, walking that line that we are called to walk, we only know because of grace. We only have comfort in life and in death because of the one who gives confidence in this. And so we lead from grace to grace. You might be asking, okay, Josh, what does this mean about faith? I thought we were talking about faith, not grace tonight. But you see that without grace, without God's unfettered, undeserved, without God's initiated, imputed grace to us, we can't have confidence in the things that we don't know. We can't live our lives in an understanding of what God has done for us if we have no knowledge of what God has done for us. Faith is of mere grace. It's not of the law. God imputes this perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. We have an assurance because of the one who lived and died for us. There's a debate right now going on in some circles, including in some CRC circles, where we talk about this idea of penal substitution. It can also be called substitutionary atonement. The idea that if we understood grace or if we understood justification in a way where we stand before God, the just judge, in ourselves, we expect to hear the declaration, guilty. We are sinners. As Jonathan Edwards put it a long time ago, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Because he knows what we are. But in that courtroom scenario, when we expect to hear the word guilty and the gavel to ring down, instead we hear innocent by the blood of Christ, by the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That instead of us paying that penalty ourselves, Christ has paid it for us. And as the Catechism says this evening, in answer 60, God's grace or God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I have never sinned 
nor been a sinner. And as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. Christ's satisfaction of the penalty that had to have been paid. The righteousness that he lived out day from day in his act of obedience. And the holiness for which he was set apart to do the work that he was called. The anointing and why he was called Christ, Messiah. That is what has been imputed to us. That is what gives us a fundamental change. And as I know I am wont to say, those who have been called according to the name of Christ and imputed with this have a change in their inward reality. Their spiritual identity has been changed. We have a culture today that is so hung up on how we define ourselves, on what label we tag ourselves, on what part of the culture we're part of, because after all, if we can be intersected and be part of the victimhood culture, we are then allowed to, we are then allowed to talk to the oppressors and say, you have done this to us. And so therefore, I demand justice. And instead we have a God that says, no, my justice has been satisfied. You, whether you are red, yellow, black, or white, whether you bear the name of Hebrew or Gentile, whether you bear the name of Dutch, or American, or French, or English, or Russian, or Khmer, or Chinese, or Australian, or African, or Ethiopian, or Kenyan, it doesn't matter. Because what you are, first of all, primarily by the grace of God, you bear the name of Christ first. Because only the name of Christ can satisfy the penalty for sin. Only the name of Christ can wash us and give us garments whiter than snow. Only the name of Christ can make us priests. A nationhood of believers. The second part, second aspect, the second understanding of faith, essentia, means that we understand what God has done to us and that our confidence is in nothing else but Jesus Christ. Or as the song would say, my hope is built on nothing less 
than Jesus Christ, his righteousness. I dare not trust a sweeter frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Our confidence is in nothing but Christ, and that is the inward reality that we now face. The spiritual changing of that from guilty, sinner, to innocent, son, daughter. My third point this evening is fiducia. This is a word that probably looks familiar to most of us now. You've gone from probably not really knowing to maybe kind of looks familiar to this looks very familiar. We talk of fiduciary companies. We talk of fiduciaries. And this is a word that maybe is familiar to us. This literally translated is faith. But in theological terms, when we talk about the fiducia part or the fiducia aspect of our faith, I like to put it in this respect. Back when I was growing up and in high school, a big thing, a big push, was about Texas Hold'em poker. And despite what I wanted, I learned way too much about it. But one of the things that you could do was call all in. And that meant that all of the money that you had accumulated in this game, you could push it into the middle and you could bet it all. And if other people wanted to stay in the game, they had to bet it all. They had to match what you had. In the Christian life, this is us going all in. This is us putting all our eggs in one basket. The knowledge that we have, the confidence that we have that it's true. And then finally, okay, you've been changed. We believe that it's true. We have an understanding of what God has done for us. But fiducia is an unshakable trust with every ounce of our being. When Christ is asked what is the greatest commandment, and he responds with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, this is what he's talking about. There is not an aspect of our lives, not a bit, not a jot or a tittle of any written part of your life that should ever be in rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God. That's what this means. And that's what the bond of faith is. It is an unbreakable, unshakable movement in our lives. Because it's not stagnant either.
the inward reality. should lead to outward fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit and a good tree bears good fruit. In our passage this evening, in Romans 4, we read that Abraham, he is the father of us all. And against all hope, Abraham in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. The reality of the world said, Abraham, you're as good as dead. You're a hundred years old. Nobody's getting any younger. And you want to have a son? Sarah, you're 90. What are you talking about? A child at your age? At best, it'll kill you. And at worst, it'll kill both of you. And you haven't had a kid yet? That's silly talk. That's craziness. Your womb is dried up. Your time of childbearing is over. Just live with the reality. Yet what does Abraham do? He doesn't say, well, okay, you're right. You know what? I, I'm, I'm going to have Eliezer, and you know, that'll be my plan B. I'll have Ishmael, and that'll be my plan C. But there's no way that God's going to be able to do this. Not a chance. But that's not what happens. What happens is Isak, laughter. Sarah's laughter. Abraham's laughter. God's laughter in the face of the world. That which was as good as dead has been made alive. That which was given up on by the world, that which was declared done and over with, has been breathed a breath of new life. And Abraham believed. He looked for the child of the promise. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Fiducia, when we push all in, means that our lives are not our own. What does question and answer one tell us? That I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who 
makes me ready and willing to live for him. Just because we have an inward reality doesn't mean it stops there. It doesn't mean we can be like the Gnostics of the old and just say, I know I have a personal relationship with my Savior, and that's good enough. Because how do you know your Savior? Because if you knew your Savior through the grace of revelation, you would know that that same revelation says, do not neglect the coming together of the saints. You would know that that special revelation also says that we are part of one body together. And that the eye can't say to the nose, I don't need you. And the ear can't say to the eye, I don't need you. And the foot can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Each of us has our calling. Each of us is a part of the whole. And each of us builds up one for another. We laugh together. We cry together. We have joy together. We have sorrow together. We are a body of Christ. And so, what must I do to be saved? What does it say in question answer 60? All I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Fiducia. What does it mean to have a believing heart? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will walk in love. You will hold to the truth. That's what it means to have faith. Finally, this evening, I want to make sure and clarify about this. I want to make sure that we are not confused. Question 61 says, why do you say that by faith alone you are right with God? I expressly believe that this question and answer is in here because of what was said at the very end of question and answer 60. All I need to do is accept this gift of God with a believing heart. I have to do something for my faith? How is that not works? It is not because of any value my faith has that God is pleased with me. Only in Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness can make me right with God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. You see, the promise that is given is not to be the understanding of righteousness itself. Just as the promise that was given to Abraham of Isaac is not to be the righteousness considered itself. 
Abraham didn't believe, and that was righteousness. Abraham didn't believe, and Isaac was born, and therefore he was righteous. Abraham believed. And it was credited to him as righteousness. The faith of Abraham, the understanding of the knowledge, the assent that it's true, the living in the way that even when the world says it isn't true, you still live as if it is true. That action is not righteousness in and of itself. For if it were, it would be nothing than the tattered rags of a beggar coming before the king saying, look at how I've cleaned up nights for you. Rather, the only acceptance that we have is what Christ has already done. The only acceptance that we know is because of the righteousness that has already been performed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That which has already been imputed to us. You see... Faith is not to be confused with righteousness. Acceptance of the truth is not to be understood as, well, I have faith, therefore I am. Faith, the acceptance, is just another fruit. It's just another part of the outward reality that we have, or the outward expression that we have. The outward manifestation of the inward reality is a fruit that Christ has already paid the penalty. That the righteousness is from Him and Him alone. And that faith is a product of grace and grace alone. Reading through Romans, reading through the Heidelberg Catechism time and time again, I don't know how many times I started going, boy, this really sounds like a Reformation Day sermon. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. But in reality, isn't that the gospel? Alone? That it's not by my hands. It could never have been by my hands. It's not possible for me to lift myself by my own bootstraps out of the mire of my own sin and say, God, look what I've done. Now give me my desserts. Because if God were truly just at that point, he'd say, okay, Welcome to hell. Instead, we have Christ. Instead of having our reality be that of a sinner, instead of our reality being nothing but looking forward to an everlasting death, 
price has been satisfied. That which must be done has already been done for us. The purity with which we are supposed to live our lives has already been accomplished. As the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, the threefold beauty of that which is imputed to us is a sweet smell in the nostrils of God. My acceptance of this is an understanding of what God has already done for me. So I can't place any value on my acceptance. Because how do I have an acceptance and live for him if I don't have a confidence in what I'm doing? And how do I have a confidence in what I'm doing if I am doing something that I have no clue about? If I have no knowledge of how the world works and how it operates and how it was created and how the manifestations of the rolling of the time and of spheres happen? How in the world do I operate in a world like that? And the problem is that that is exactly the crisis and the conundrum that every person in this world has to come to grips with, whether they like it or not. That's the horror that is facing the end of us. If I know only what I can perceive if I know only what I can think and what I can touch and what I can taste and what I can, what I can think about, I miss out on so much of life, so much of the beauty and the richness. I miss out on so much of what God has actually done. And so I live and I have a partial understanding of the truth at best. I live a life that is built upon a shaky foundation because I have no knowledge of what's actually going on around me and so I live lost, wandering in a world of darkness. People of God, that should drive us all the more to our brothers and sisters that are still yet to turn. That's why we support missions. That's why we talk to people on the street. That's why we interact with people on a day-to-day -day basis that God brings us, that brings across our paths. Because they live in brokenness. They have confidence in that which they do not know. They live in a manner that is in accordance with a part of the world that has blinded them. And so they lie to themselves day after day after day. So as we leave this place this evening, let us have a knowledge of what God has revealed to us in his word. Let us have a confidence and assurance that what he has revealed to us is true. And let us live every day, whether the world says one thing or another, 
living every day as if that truth is the only truth there is. Because frankly, that's what it is. And let's not be confused that our acceptance somehow merits anything. Because it's all by grace. Because as Paul writes, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not by works that any man could boast, but it is a gift of God. And so let us share that gift with those around us in the community, holding out the word of light. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we come before you as your people, hearing about faith and knowing that it is all by grace, all by your providential hand. Lord, we ask that we may be given clarity, that we may have boldness in the confidence that you've given and that our faith is worked out day by day around us. That our words, our thoughts, and our actions may live for you. That we may walk in love. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our only hope. Amen.